This morning the uh, reading is from Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. Thanksgiving and prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be held head over everything for the church, to which his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. Thank you, Kay. We, last week, started a series working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, known as the letter to the Ephesians. And, um, whoop, can we go to slide one? Um, when we were doing that, there was one thing that stood out, or certainly stands out for me, throughout the whole of the letter, but particularly in that introductory part of the thing. And this is it. Paul reminds us of it at the start of this passage. Why was he praying for them? Well, he says, for this reason, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. And that reason is that they are in Christ. And we explored that particularly last week. Um, Maybe you want to go and have a listen to that on our website because I can't go into full detail of what that means uh, again today. But Paul was persistently praying for these Christians. It's easy for us to feel guilty or to be made to feel guilty in church because we don't pray as much as we think we should or because we're told we don't pray enough. I really don't want anyone to feel guilty. I want instead to ask God's Spirit to inspire us in our praying. Paul wanted these young Christians to grow in Christ. So he says he was praying continuously for them. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking, he says. He'd not stopped giving thanks because they mattered to him. Whenever Paul thought of these Christians in Ephesus, his heart was lifted and he gave God thanks for them. I don't know how you feel about Muttley Baptist Church. That's how I feel about you. I give thanks to God for you all. I'm so grateful that God called me to be a part of this church. When we think of 
each other, this church, let's give God thanks for each other. Give thanks to God for the people who are sat around you or the people you can see on the screen. Give thanks to God that for those we can't see online on Zoom, but who are still there. Give thanks to God for those who come to the six o'clock service. Give thanks to God for all those who come to all of the different activities during the week. Why? Because we matter to each other. We matter to God. Paul said too, he was remembering them in his prayers. What he means is specifically he was praying for them. Sometimes we pray a general prayer, perhaps for people who are hungry, for Christians who are persecuted, for an end to war. But we can also pray specifically. So last Sunday someone asked me to pray for them specifically for something that was happening this Friday. So I remembered her in my prayers. When I think of you during the week, I try to remember you in my prayers. In our pastoral group who meet every Wednesday, we remember you in our prayers by name. Now you may not know someone's name. You may only know their face, or you may actually only know vaguely that they sit in that particular part of the church most weeks. Or you may have seen them going into one of the midweek groups and you can just kind of remember them, but you don't know them. You can still specifically pray for them, remember them in your prayers, because God knows who, who they are exactly. But specifically praying for people, remembering them before God, is significant. It's significant to God, it's significant to us, it's significant to them. And it helps to build relationships between us. And it doesn't have to be church people only. We can remember other people in our prayers, our friends, our family, our colleagues. People you meet regularly, or people that may just serve you a cup of coffee or in the shop. And we can remember corporately as well. Groups, activities, other churches, countries, cities, the world. Because these things matter. These people matter. And while Paul was remembering these people in his prayers, he was persistent. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking. This wasn't just a, a one-off prayer. These Christians were always on his mind. And when he was reminded of them, he prayed for them. Now, I don't think that Paul just constantly went around thinking Ephesians, 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 Ephesians. But there would be things that would bring them back to his mind and go, oh yeah, let me remember the, the Ephesians. Things that would perhaps, maybe he'd see someone he, re he knew was from Ephesus, or maybe he would uh, see something reminded him of the city because he'd been there. I wonder what reminders you might use to help you remember to pray for others in your prayers. Could be that you physically write something in your diary or set a reminder on your phone. Maybe put a post-it note up somewhere where you'll see it. Use the weekly program of the church 
on the, on the back of the Muttley Matters magazine to prompt you to remember people in your prayers. Use the, the really helpful monthly mission prayer bulletin that Helen Needham compiles for us. Come to the prayer meetings tomorrow night. I had a thought last week. I'm still working it through. Lots of churches have a motto text for the year, a verse from the Bible, and they say, this is our motto for the year. And I tend not to, to do that, but I wondered, what about if we had a prayer focus for the year? So perhaps Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we have a different prayer each day of the week. And we could pray them together. Not physically together, but at the same time, or each day we're praying the same prayer. So I'm going to work through that. But it might be a reminder to pray for one another. Paul kept praying these things for the church in Ephesus because these people matter to him and they matter to God. Please, God, help us to matter to one another more. And then Paul wrote that slightly enigmatic phrase. He was praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened or opened. But hearts don't have eyes. And we know that we're not thinking about the physical organ inside us. Heart is the centre of our being. In the culture of the day, it was believed to be the place where our emotions, our thinking, our morality, even our personality are stored. The heart of us. And enlightening the eyes of our heart means that we are able to perceive more clearly and more fully and know for ourselves. Not simply head knowledge, but lived experience. Open the eyes of our hearts. Why? So that we can see and know several things. First of all, the hope to which God has called us. In the prayer we looked at last week, the first part of Ephesians 1, Paul writes about the blessings of being in Christ. And that's the hope that we have when we are in Christ. We are redeemed, adopted, forgiven, given wisdom and discernment, being included. We have a guaranteed eternal inheritance. The hope that Paul is writing about isn't a a kind of, well, I hope it happens, a longing that may be fulfilled. The word has a about it, a confident expectation, it will come to pass. It will be. We can be confident that we receive the blessings that we looked at last week because we are in Christ. We have confidence in the God who redeemed us because in Christ he, set the, he paid the price to set us free. We have confidence in our status as part of God's family because Christ, in Christ we are adopted Paul says in the first part of this letter. We're confident that we're free from guilt and accusation because we're forgiven. We're confidently led by God. In Christ, we have his wisdom and discernment. We're confident that we're part of something bigger. In Christ, we're part of God's big story. And we're confident of our eternal future because we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That is our hope. And Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians will just grasp that a bit more. 
We'll understand more of that. We'll experience more of that. And that's my prayer for us too, that we will experience and know more of that hope. He's also praying that we can see and know the riches of God's inheritance. Paul calls it a glorious inheritance. In the previous section, Paul wrote that we are all heirs in Christ, H-E-I-R-S. And he wrote that the Holy Spirit is like the down payment of what we will receive and experience. If you have God's Spirit in you, your future is secure, he says. We will inherit God's future, as well as being part of his presence. And then Paul talks about our hearts being enlightened so that we can see and know God's incomparable power. We have access to the greatest power in human history, the power to raise Jesus from the dead and place him at the right hand of the Father. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, we're all conscious of power at the moment, aren't we? We're aware of the cost of fuel in our cars, electricity and gas in our homes. We're more aware of the environmental impact of burning fossil fuel and the advantage of renewable energy. We're aware of the incredible power contained within the atoms of this world that can be harnessed by nuclear power stations, but also with the Russian threats in Ukraine, again, aware of the power of nuclear weapons. But none of these things can raise Jesus from the dead. Not just resuscitate them, but actually bring back from the dead after he'd been certified as dead and entombed. Not just a renovation, but giving him a new eternal resurrection body that's no longer limited by time and space. And that same mega power, Paul says, is available to us. And that same mega power placed Jesus on the throne in heaven at God's right hand. God's right hand man. It's kind of the position of the prime minister next to the monarch. That's what Paul says about Jesus. Now, it would have been really powerful for the Ephesian Christians to read about this power, about Jesus having the supreme power and the supreme authority, because they would have felt that they'd got none. They were powerless in a powerful city. Ephesus was a major port in those days on the trade routes, the major trade routes within the Mediterranean. Trade in precious metals was one of the keys to its commercial success. But many of the early Christians were from the slave or servant classes. They would have felt economically powerless. Ephesus was also a, a center of political power. It was the Roman capital of the province, and as such was very much under the influence of the Roman Empire. Roman law, Roman customs prevailed. The governor was the emperor's representative. If you were a Roman citizen in Ephesus, you were someone. If you were from the underclasses, you had no political power. 
And Ephesus was also a religious center. The cult of the goddess Diana, if you were Roman, or Artemis, if you were Greek, were centered on Ephesus. And there was a temple, a magnificent temple to Diana, stroke Artemis, known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And if you read about when Paul was in Ephesus, you can read about it in Acts 19, the silversmiths who made silver models for the tourist trade provoked a riot against Paul because they were losing trade as people became Christians. Paul was smuggled out of the city to save his life. If you were a Christian in Ephesus, you would have been aware of that pressure and you would have felt that threat. You would have felt powerless. And in the face of all of this, Paul wants to encourage them that they're not actually powerless. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, they don't need to feel that powerlessness. Because his power is far greater than anything economic, political, or religious. He's the ultimate authority in the universe, above the emperor. And we are in Christ. So we need not fear. It's a power that transforms. And as I was reflecting on those three areas of powerlessness, economic, political, and religious, it struck me that we could still today feel that same powerlessness in those areas. Economically, well, as a church, we're running a deficit budget and have done for a couple of years now. As individuals, we are affected by the cost of living crisis. Politically, decisions that are made at national or local level affect us, but somehow it doesn't feel like we can affect them. And religiously, does it feel like churches are being sidelined at the moment in society? feels to me that the prevailing cult is atheism or agnosticism. We don't need to fear, because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. That's what Paul wants us to know. That's what he wants our hearts to be enlightened about, because it changes our expectations. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can do much more than we could ask or imagine. So let's not think small. It changes our approach. We have this power Not a power to be a performer or to impress, but to be transformers and express our faith. And it changes how we look. At the end of this section, Paul wrote that the church is the fullness of Jesus, filled with him in every way. In other words, when people look at church, they should be able to see Jesus in all his fullness in the way he cares for people, stands up for people, loves people. I have a phrase which I use often, and uh, Sally tells me off for, because I use it too much, but I like it. We are called to be free samples of Jesus, as a church and as individuals. So that when people look at us collectively and individually, they can see him. And they can see what is different about us, partly because of our changed expectation, our changed approach, and our changed look, because we are empowered by him. 
that transforming expectations and approach and the way we look affects those three areas where we might feel powerless. It transforms economics. One of our new values is that we are called to be generously big-hearted with what we have. We can pray that God's power will multiply what he has given us in the same way that, he, that Jesus did with five loaves and two fish. And that multiplication might look like warm space, bigger tables, soup run. It might look like us caring for one another. It might look like us taking steps of faith with what God has given us, rather than hiding it under the floorboards in case we lose it. It can transform politics. Politics, not just political party politics, but actually politics is about the business of being people together. One of our values is that we are people-focused. God's power can help us transform politics by us getting involved. Fiona and I are part of the Muttley Traders Group. We're trying to make a difference to Muttley Plain. Any one of us could speak with, write to, or engage with our politicians, our local councillors, our national MPs. All of them are on social media, and all of them are looking for people who will be activists, who will work with them in society to improve people's lives. And if all that seems just a bit big, well, politics is also talking to your neighbours on a local level and saying, how can we make a difference here in our street? And another of our values is that we are God-orientated. God's power can help us to transform religious conversations into conversations about faith. Because there's a difference. We can't be silent because our faith is in the resurrected Jesus who left an empty tomb behind him. Nobody found his body because it wasn't there. Maybe coming to or bringing someone to sacred pathways is part of how the religious conversation might be changed. We can pray for the power as followers of Jesus to share our faith, not being silent when the opportunities arise. Paul says the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. If we're open to it, if we're looking for it, if we're praying for it, then the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened and we will see God at work in so many different ways. Through us as an individual, through us as a church, throughout his world. We're going to sing a couple of songs. First one, you may have already guessed, we're going to sing Open 